So how many of you remember what you were doing one year ago today? Anybody? I know what I was doing. I was right here. And I said to you, we are about to start a series called Destiny. And at that time, we took a week and studied specifically how was the Bible put together? How can we know that we can trust what the Word of God says is true? And we looked at it archaeologically, scientifically, and we looked at the synchronicity of it throughout time. We spent a lot of time on that. And from that portion, we launched forward into the Destiny series. Well, Michael and I, when we were talking about this particular Sunday a few weeks ago, thought that it would be really good if we did just kind of a brief review in between worship songs about where we've been to get to this point today. Because we studied the historicity of Scripture, and then we launched into what was known as the destiny of a man, and we studied the life of Joseph. We spent a lot of weeks in the life of Joseph looking at how God performed in his life and one major truth that came out of that, that God sometimes takes us through very difficult circumstances to accomplish his purpose and allows us to go through those trials to produce an end result. And the end result, in course, of course, in Joseph's life is that he brought Joseph into the realm of Pharaoh's kingdom in which he was exalted to the second under Pharaoh. And that set the stage for Jacob and the 12 sons of Israel to move into Egypt. And Israel as a nation unfolded in the land of Egypt. And so we began to study the destiny of a nation. Went from destiny of a man to destiny of a nation. And watched how God used Israel to set the stage for the arrival of Jesus by forming a new nation out of those people, those tribes of Israel. Nine weeks ago, we stepped from there into the book of Revelation. And we found out in chapter 1 that God said something very specific to John that he wanted him to do. Look up on the screen with me at this first verse. Revelation 1.19. This is Jesus speaking to John. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Do you notice the progression there? Write the things which you have seen. John had to write everything he saw about chapter 1, the vision of Jesus the glorious arrival of Jesus in front of him. And we spent an entire Sunday on that. And then he said, I want you to write the things which are. What were those? The seven churches that we just studied over the last seven weeks. What Jesus had to say to his church, which takes us to where we're at now, the things which will take place in the future. And that's where we're stepping today. But before we do that, I thought it'd be really cool to look back at the promises that Jesus made to you as overcomers. Everything that he promised us from those first seven letters. So I want you to look up on the screen and you see the list that I came up with of all the promises that Jesus made to us as overcomers. The privilege of eating from the tree of life, the crown of life, protection from the second death, the hidden manna, a white stone with a new name written on it, Authority to rule the nations, the morning star, a new wardrobe will not blot our names out of the book of life. The honor of having Christ confess our names before God, to be made a pillar in God's temple, to write on us the name of God, the new city, and Christ himself. And last week we learned that we would actually be seated at the throne of Jesus Christ. 
Those are some significant promises. And so Jesus put an exclamation point on it by saying, I am the amen. Remember that? Amen, amen, verily, verily, or truly, truly. He put a big exclamation point on it saying, you can depend on this. Everything that I've said I will do, I will do. So if you're tracking the flow of events in the book of Revelation so far, we've covered the things which were Jesus in his explanation to John. Those are the first things, phase one. The things which will be the churches, the seven letters to the churches. And where we step now is to the things in the future. That's what we're going to study after we move through this first section of worship coming up. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God will give application to our hearts because what we're about to look at is some very difficult text. Would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, as men and women, students, children, who want to know more of you, who want to understand more of your nature and your character, we ask that you would make yourself real to us today through this text that we're about to read. We ask, Father, specifically that you'd give us a capacity to understand these difficult passages. We know that you've written them down for a specific reason. You want us to understand them. We ask that you would indeed give us spiritual eyes, the eyes to see and the ears to hear, and a heart to make application to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, when we talked about um, Jesus teaching from the mountainside, he was teaching specifically what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And I told you at that time that um, he interrupted his own teaching. In the midst of his message, he stopped and he said, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? Remember that? And at the end of it, he actually said to them, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to get into the kingdom of heaven. You know, at the very end of that teaching, even though he spoke that harshly to people, they stepped back and said, who is this that teaches with this kind of authority? Who has this kind of power to speak to us this way? And the conclusion was that he had a lot of authority and he had the ability to speak into their life. This word authority, I want you to get it down because it really plays a major role in where we're headed. Look at the Greek definition for the word authority first. Exousia. It means to be a force. Competency. Freedom. It contains all these thoughts. And it belongs to one attached with this type of a title. A magistrate or one that the ancients thought to be superhuman. A potentate. One who has delegated influence. Which matches what we know about God giving Jesus the charge, this is what you will do, delegated influence with jurisdiction, with liberty, with power. So when they said, by what authority do you do this? By what exousia? All those thoughts went through their mind. Now that's a Greek word. There's another word that matches it in the Hebrew language, and I really want you to get this one down. Not only because it's a fun word to say, but it's got a cool definition with it. Same word, authority. Here's what it is. Shmika. 
Sounds like something one of the hobbits would have said in the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Shmika. Okay, say that with me. Shmika. Try it one more time. Shmika. And the rabbis were thought that because they contained so much authority when they moved throughout the land of Judea to teach, that they were endowed with shmika. Now, if we called an individual up here and sat him on the steps and asked the elders of the church to come around and pray over an individual who was going into ministry by laying hands on that person according to Scripture, what we'd be doing is placing shmika on that individual. You see it with Moses and Joshua in the Old Testament when God said, set Joshua aside, Moses, and lay your hand on him, endowing him with shmika, authority. So with these definitions in your mind, I want to read to you a passage you're going to see up on the screen in which Jesus was challenged by the leaders of the Jewish people about where his authority came from. This comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 21. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what exousia, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, he's having a riddle game with them. You tell me and I'll tell you. And he asked them a really tough riddle. I won't tell you what it is right now. You can go read it later yourself. But they wouldn't answer it because they couldn't figure out the answer. So Jesus said, fine. I will not tell you by what exousia I do these things. This issue of authority and where it emanates from is a huge issue in chapter four. If you've never stopped to think about who dared give Jesus the authority to do what he did, you are about to find out. I will tell you that followers of the King of Kings, you are about to step into a realm that very few people take time to study to really comprehend what's going on around the throne of God. So we're stepping now into future things, the things which must take place according to Scripture. The things that Scripture says will happen. Chapter 4 is the beginning of the tribulation period. Chapter 4 and 5 describe God's throne first, and chapter 6 begins to unveil what does the Antichrist look like, the son of Satan the beginning of the tribulation period, and it's a time of great testing for those who remain on the earth. Jesus said, except for that the days would be shortened, all of the flesh on the earth would disappear, except that he would cut it short. So what we find here is the end of the church age. So think this through with me chronologically. Jesus revealed himself in chapter one. Chapter two and three, letters to the seven churches. Church age ends and the beginning of end times things. Many commentators who are pre-tribulationist, as I happen to be, believe that this is the point in the timeline in which the church ceases to exist. And we're talking about future things. We're talking about the rapture or the taking away of the people of God. The rapture of the church. So the Lord from this point on is going to show John the things which must take place. Why do I hold that position? Up till this particular chapter, chapter 4, in chapters 2 and 3, the church is referred to 16 times as the force on earth 
which holds back evil. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember, that's what Jesus said. The church is an institution, and the gates of hell will not hold back against it. But when the church is removed, all hell breaks loose on earth. The gates of hell are opened up in the tribulation period. So that's why Jesus said, if it were not for the shortening of days, all flesh would cease to exist on the earth. But let's not talk about that just yet. Let's talk about this throne thing. Last week we talked about Jesus being seated at the throne. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension into heaven, seated at the throne of God. So a question for you. What do you think of when you think of the throne of God? What's the picture that you have in your mind? I try and envision it, especially when I'm singing songs like Holy, 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 like we just did. Wow, I wish I could get that in my mind and really wrap my mind around it. It's very difficult to envision because of this. We've seen thrones. We've seen what the Queen of England sits on. We think, well, it's a piece of furniture. It's got some stuffing in it with some velvet on it and tacks and jewels. That's not what's going on here, as you're about to see. Don't think of a piece of furniture. See, in God's realm, in God's rule, in God's government, there is no democracy like we're used to. It's a theocracy. There's no Congress. There's no Republicans. There's no Democrats. Do I hear an amen? amen. Okay. It's a theocracy. He alone is in control. He alone rules. So he sitteth in the seat of power with a capacity to determine destiny. On earth, we would say one person who controls the judicial system, who controls the legislative system, who controls the legal system, the judiciary, we would say that person is a dictator, a potentate, an emperor. If you take all those forces, legal forces, judicial forces, life-giving forces, and place them within the realm of one person, we would say that is God over all of the universe, all of the issues contained within it. And you want to be sure that the God who is on that throne as a judge judges fairly and firmly. That's what you're about to see because we get a round-trip ticket into heaven this morning. We get to go there and come back. So open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to see what John saw. I will tell you that this is perhaps the most difficult passage of Scripture I have ever taught just because it's so hard to put definition to it. We'll do our best as we move through it. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew rack in front of you. And if this is your first time here, we really want you to take one of those with you if you don't own a Bible so that you can have one to study on your own. Revelation 4.1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. In fact, you have your own Bible and you don't mind writing in it, I would circle the word must because Jesus is saying it's going to happen. You can depend on it. It's firm. This must take place and it won't change. 
And here we're reminded that God is purposeful and He's a God of order. Everything has a reason. Why? Because He says, after these things, after you've done this, now I'm going to show you these things. What things did He see? He saw the vision of Jesus and the seven letters to the churches. And now after these things, we're moving forward in time. And He says, and behold, a door. And this is the way you would say it if you were John. Wow! I do! I-D-O-O-U. I do! Behold. It's a phrase of, of exclamation, of astonishment. It's like, whoa! A door! And don't think of a wooden door. Think of a portal, an opening. Because we're not talking about a literal wooden door here. John looked and saw a portal into heaven an opening. Now he's not the first one to see that. There's others in Scripture that we're told actually saw a portal into heaven. But there is a difference. Let me show you first from the Old Testament, Isaiah 6.1. This is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. That's from the Old Testament. Here comes the New Testament. This is Stephen speaking. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But there's a difference between what we're seeing here and what these other individuals have seen. John is actually taken into heaven. He's actually called up. And he says, the first voice which I heard. What was the first voice he heard? Think back in Revelation chapter 1. The first voice he heard was Jesus speaking like a trumpet. Very clear, very audibly saying, come up here. And I'm going to show you what must take place. So we got John on Patmos, on the island. He's experienced this vision of Christ. He's written the letters to the churches. And now Jesus comes and says, come up here to the third heaven. This portal, this opening admitted him into what we call the third heaven. First heaven, our sky. We fly jet airplanes around in our sky. First heaven. Second heaven. Outer space, galaxies, stars, planets, second heaven. Third heaven, the dwelling place of the Almighty, of God. It's the place where Jesus went. He said, I am going there, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, not, I, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So John, with this portal open, allows entrance into the very throne room of God, the dwelling place of the Ancient of Days. And John's found himself in the control center of the universe. Cool, no computers to control things, just God. Okay, let's look at verse two. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. There's that word again. Wow, a throne. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So behold, the first one is for a door, a portal into heaven. And now it's, wow, I'm astonished. He's overwhelmed, exclamation point. 
that he gets to see this throne. And what's it doing? It says, standing in heaven. See, God's sovereign rule is fixed. It's permanent. It's unshakable. He's in complete control. And this word standing in heaven, the word standing means it's permanent. It doesn't change. What it's conveying to us is this is not a folding chair. You can't pick it up and haul it away and throw it out. This is something that is unchangeable. It's there for all time. So he sees this unmovable throne and that there is a throne communicates something to us. It communicates that there are some absolutes. Think of it this way. In science, there are absolutes, aren't there? There are laws, laws of thermodynamics, laws of gravity, laws of magnetism by which we get our compasses. There are laws that are fixed, that are unchangeable. The same thing applies in God's morality as well. Things that are unchangeable, never shaken. Even though society drifts away, God's laws never change. They're always permanent. So that there is a throne communicates to us there's some absolutes, and God maintains these laws by the power from his throne. Now, this is a really comforting realization if you stop and think about it. As you move into the tribulation period of time, you want to say, what God said is firm. I can depend upon it. It's real. It doesn't change. Because if it changed, it might be in a whole world of hurt. So John says, I see him sitting there. He's the sovereign who's in control, the creator of the universe. Look at the word for sitting in Greek, the definition for it. Hedra yos. Hedra yos means immovable, unshakable, steadfast. So here he is, not resting, but in a posture of reigning on his throne. Why? Because something is about to happen. Something in the way in which the judge needs to be on his throne and he's in charge. Something significant to all the universe. So before we get into the trauma and the horror of chapter 6, it's important to let it be known that God is on his throne and it does not change. He is set immovable and fixed. And now we step into the definition of God the Father from John's point of view. He says, like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. It's best to think of jasper like a diamond. So when we think of John seeing the form of God, he's seeing an incredibly clear, flawless image of some type. And he says, like a jasper, which is a diamond for us, it's crystal clear. But then he says, it's, it's like a sardius also. What's a sardius? A sardius is a ruby red flaming stone. So John sees this incredibly clear image that's like flaming, brilliant. And it speaks of fiery image. Ezekiel chapter 1. You're going to want to read that later today yourself. Ezekiel chapter 1. He gives a description of the throne room of God also. It's just very difficult to understand. But the images that come out of there purvey to us that this is a powerful, flaming image coming forth from the throne. So he sees this clear image, and it's blazing. And he's trying to put a description to it. And look what he says next. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. 
like an emerald, speaks that green is the dominant color around the throne. Now, before you Spartan fans get carried away, I want you to, <laughs> I want you to think about this. He said, it's like an emerald encircling the throne. He speaks specifically of a rainbow, and the word he uses is not a half of an arch. It's a complete circle. So God said to Noah back in Genesis, I will put my bow in the clouds, and when we see a rainbow, we see an arch here on earth. God's saying, it's my bow that I'm going to set over the earth. And he's saying specifically, why am I going to put it there? As a reminder to you of my faithfulness, of my promise, of my grace and covenant promise with you. So what we see here is John looking and seeing this wrath of God in the center of the throne, this powerful imagery, surrounded by this green hue that speaks of his faithfulness. And you know what I take away from that? God specifically never allows his wrath to overcome his faithfulness. The two work in conjunction together. They're always symbiotic together. Look at what was said in Ezekiel 1.27 about Ezekiel's vision of God on his throne. You'll see it up on the screen. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. So I take away from this that John saw this amazing vision through the portal in heaven. But when he saw it, he was reminded of God's incredible wrath, but also his faithfulness. He saw the bow in the clouds. Let's move forward now into the next verse, verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Almost every week I'm asked after I teach a message, how do you come up with the way that you study? What's your method for going through that? And I thought as I was working through this one, this would be a good verse for you to see how I do deductive reasoning when I work through a particular passage. So I'm gonna show you things that really pop out at me when I look at this particular verse. So let's read it again first. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now the first thing I want to ask myself is, who are these guys? Who are these 24? It doesn't say in Scripture. So I'd like to say, man, I'd love to ask an angel. Wouldn't that be helpful? Hey, could you tell me who these guys are? Well, we don't have an angel to ask, and God didn't write their names down, but I'd like to know a little bit more about them. So I've used deductive reasoning, and I look at that and say, well, there's white clothing mentioned. Okay, so white generally belongs to those who are redeemed, doesn't it? So that's what Scripture speaks of. And then there's a reference to 24 thrones indicating that they're reigning with Christ. Well, we never read about angels reigning with Christ. We read about you, the church, reigning with Christ. And then it says that they're presbyteros, they're elders. Angels are never referred to as elders. So deductively, we would say, wow, White clothing, 24 thrones, they're reigning, presbyteros, and there's a fourth one. It says that they're wearing golden crowns. Now, in Scripture, there's two crowns mentioned. That's the only kind ever mentioned are these two. The diadema, the diadem crown, which God wears and Jesus wears. The crown of royalty. 
And then there's the Stephanos crown, which is given out to those who rule victoriously, those who are the nikao, the overcomers. Remember that word from working through the seven churches. So this specifically is saying a Stephanos crown, a golden crown is on their heads. So what we can deduce from this is these are people, these 24 who in the future are chosen to sit around the throne of God, a very exalted position. Obviously, these are probably saints, those who have been redeemed by the work of the Lamb who sit around the throne. You'll see that in just a minute. Let's go to verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Out from the throne, just pouring out, roaring, flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Now, where have you heard that before? Do you remember in the destiny of a nation? when we looked at the nation of Israel and they went to Mount Sinai and God said, Moses, get the people ready because I'm coming down on the mountain on the third day. How did he come down? With flashes of lightning, rolls and peals of thunder, so much so that everybody hid in terror. So you see this associated with God's presence. You'd say, well, this roar of thunder is associated with God. And the second thing it associates with him is in the book of Revelation, Every time you see the roar of thunder, one of God's judgments has been unfolded. For instance, let me read this one to you from Revelation 8.5. The angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning. So each time you watch as we move through the tribulation period, when God carries out a judgment on the earth, there's a roar from heaven, a roar of thunder and flashes of lightning coming from his throne. And that's what John's seeing. And he sees two other things, the seven lamps of fire and the seven spirits of God. Now you might remember when we looked before that we understand there's only one spirit with the fullness of God, seven characteristics, the wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding. So those spirits contained within the Holy Spirit. But specifically, he says, seven lamps of fire. You know what these are? These are war torches. These aren't little candles like your wife might put on an end table to give some fragrant aroma to your home. These are the torches that armies carried with them when they went into battle. War torches. So what we see here is the fullness of the Holy Spirit and God preparing to go to war. The war torches are out and the Holy Spirit is the one who goes before and makes war. Okay? So let's move into verse 6. This is the one which kept me up at night all night long last night. My wife kept saying to me, how come you're not sleeping? How come you're not sleeping? I was thinking about this passage. This is so difficult. You know, over the last couple weeks, I've read this verse to Lori And her response has always been, sorry to use you as an example, what can she do? I've got the microphone, right? (laughs) When I read to her about the eyes and these creatures that we're about to read about, covered with eyes, her response is, oh, I don't want to think of that in heaven, of something covered with eyes, or the fact that there's a cow with wings. That, that's a weird one, isn't it? Well, that's not exactly what it says, but her response was, oh, well, let's see if you have the same response, okay? 
This is very difficult to get down. Verse 6, and before the throne, here, I want to stop you for just a second. Count how many times John uses the word like as we move through this passage. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That last part there you could say, or is coming, is a more accurate interpretation. Okay, so this is a tough one. Let's take it just a phrase at a time. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now John actually saw this. How many times did he use the word like? Did you count? Six. Six times John said, it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this, and we're the ones reading this. He actually got to see it, and he's struggling to describe it. Now, we're seeing this and going, what? What's going on here? Something like a sea. Well, we know from Revelation 21, there's no sea in heaven. So what is he actually seeing? Well, Moses saw something very similar with the, with the elders in the Exodus journey. Look up on the screen, Exodus 24.10. And they, the elders, saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Now he's kind of struggling to describe it too, isn't he? There appeared to be. Now over the heads, and this is Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw the same thing. Uh, now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. So what are they seeing? This amazing, vast expanse, clear as crystal, not water, but like a sea because it just goes on and stretches out. And that's what's surrounding the throne. And in the midst of it, he sees these four living creatures. Now, this word creatures is added for our benefit in the English version of the Bible. It's not in the original text because they're trying, struggling to put a framework around it. The actual word is zoon, Z-O-O-N, and it means a live thing. So don't think in terms of this, this is not a pet, okay? This is not God's little pet animals that he's got around the throne. These are creatures, like we are creatures. We are human creatures. These are heavenly creatures, and they surround the throne. The phrase actually comes from one Greek word and it represents the whole sentence there, and it's the word zao, Z-A-O. And what it literally means is something that was moving with life, just constantly on the move, and it had these appearances that he's describing. Ezekiel suggested they're in constant motion. Look up on the screen with me. Ezekiel 1.14, and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Ezekiel saw them a little bit later in his life, one other time. This comes from Ezekiel 10:15. Then the cherubim rose up. 
They are the living beings, the creatures that I saw by the river Chabar. So when we think of them as being cherubim, we would say, wow, there's some kind of order of the angel. We don't know what order, but they have the high privilege of being near the throne of God, an exalted order of angels. Now at this point, John begins to describe what I call the indescribable. It's just, I don't know how else to put framework to it. He says they're full of eyes in front and behind, under their wings, on their sides. Ezekiel actually said that it's covering their body. That's the part my wife went, oh, to, <laughs> okay? I think what it's indicating here specifically, other than the fact it could be a very real visible image, is that they're constantly on the alert, attent to everything that's going on. Their attention is never distracted, always attentive to the things of God. Isaiah saw something just like these, and he said something very specific about them. He said that with their six wings, they do something unique. With two of their wings, he said, they fly. With two of their wings, they cover their eyes. And with two of their wings, they cover their feet. Have you ever read that in Isaiah 6 and wondered what in the world is that about? It got six wings, why isn't he using all of them? I think, and I understand from what I've read from some other commentators, is they stand in the presence of God on holy ground. So with two wings, they cover their feet and they can't look upon the glory of God. And so with two wings, they cover their eyes because he is awesome in his appearance. And so with two wings, they fly. And we have this incredible appearance of these individuals who are around God's throne, and what are they doing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says they cease not to say it. Why? Holiness of God cannot tolerate the presence of evil. And it's constantly declaring everything surrounding this is holy. There's no evil here. And they're celebrating the presence of God's work in the midst of his creation. How did they say it specifically? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. What's that speaking of? His creation. All of his creation. So God's on the throne with this incredible appearance that John sees, entrenched firmly on a throne that's not movable. And they're praising him for his creation because he's about to judge his creation. What did Isaiah see specifically when he saw this? Isaiah 6.3. It says, And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Have you been to an MSU game, basketball or football, it doesn't matter, and one side of the stadium says, go green, and the other side says, go white, and the other side says, go green, and the other side says, go white. That's antiphonal praise, okay? We've just adapted it to football and to sports. What you see going on here when Isaiah says they called out to one another, it's antiphonal. Holy, 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 holy. And it echoes all over heaven. Isaiah said it was so powerful that it shook the temple of heaven, literally quaked. I think that would take quite an earthquake to shake the temple of heaven. 
Their voices roared that loud. And this scene moves into the last two verses as it culminates in something spectacular. It culminates in the worship of God. Let me take you to these last two verses. Verse nine, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for what? For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. When the truth of God is proclaimed, the response of the highest order of created beings is to relinquish their crowns and to lay them right at his feet. And do you notice the interesting thing that happens there? The praise of the quartet, you got the four creatures, triggers a response from the 24 elders. The four in the quartet begin to praise him and the 24 sitting around the throne hear it and they begin to break out into their own praise chorus and they very quickly write one and they say, worthy are you our Lord and our God for you shall receive honor and glory and praise. They're not preoccupied with their own achievements. They've got these crowns. They're victors and yet they're willing to lay their crowns at the feet of the king and say, you're worthy. And you notice this is not a mere mechanical recital. They don't just go into it like they've sung this song a hundred times over. They're busting out all over the place, shouting it in heaven. They want him to hear what they have to say. They're declaring praise because they've discovered a new and exciting thing about God's awesomeness. That's what worship ought to be. It comes and it swells up from within you. And I notice something fascinating here. When this quartet begins to sing, then the ensemble of the 24 kicks in. And when the ensemble kicks in, you're gonna see in chapter five that an instrument section is added. And when the instrument section is added, then the angels hear it. And they begin to sing back and forth. And they hear the same thing. And it's going back and forth. And when the angels, and John says, thousands times thousands times tens of thousands begin to sing, the last thing he says is, I heard all of creation, those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, busted out in praise of God. It's a crescendo, and it continues to build in the throne room scene. And what do they say? Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. That word worthy is taken directly from the military operations of the Roman government. Axios. When a Roman military captain went out and conquered the enemy, as he came back into the city, they would have a huge processional for him. And everyone who lined the streets as he made his way to the Capitol building where the Caesar was at would say, Axios, Axios, Axios. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Because why? Because he was the victor. So you see this picture taking place here. This song anticipates God taking back his creation. 
creation that was lost at the fall is going to be regained. And there's an expression here within this throne's purpose saying, nothing that happens, nothing that exists in the past, in the present, or in the future happens without the one who's firmly entrenched in his throne, totally in control of it all. That's why John needed to see this, because of what's coming. Next thing that comes out of this, I believe, is that the reality that God is on his throne and nothing that he's preparing can be changed. He is eminently prepared to carry forth his judgment. So where does his authority emanate from? When the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, by what exousia do you do this? Jesus just kept it inside, didn't he? He played his cards very close to the vest. I'll tell you. I'll tell you if you can tell me this. Do you remember when the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, Master, when you come into your kingdom, will you grant this privilege? Grant that my sons will sit on your right and on your left of your throne. And Jesus' response was, what? You have no idea what you're asking. You now have an idea what she was asking. You have seen the description John saw, the best way that we can. So I want you to help uh, to really get this entrenched in your mind, what's going on here. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and what I'm going to do is read all 11 verses back to you again. Revelation, chapter four, verse one. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within 
and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they exist and were created.